You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to We Are Libertarians, where our goal is to help you sound smarter while talking to your friends. This is another special episode of We Are Libertarians with our good friend Rob Cortell, and it's called The Swamp Explained. My name is Chris Spangle. We talked to Rob, who is a 45-year fly on the wall in Washington, D.C. Rob has worked for Republican presidential campaigns, government agencies like the EPA, and has been confirmed by the Senate to the U.S. Maritime Commission. He's also been a candidate for Congress and Senate. He's also spent years working in the private technology sector, working with startup companies. And uh, you're going to hear a lot of cool facts about his past. He's he, Well, here he's deep state. That's what I heard. Given his experience <laughs> and iconoclastic viewpoints, Rob gives us great insight into the swamp that makes up our nation's capital. And, uh, you know, we, we how can you change something you don't understand? And that's the goal of this show is to talk about ex- Washington and its power structure and and how it exists now and what does it look like. And so we're going to talk about some of the presidential polling, the post-Trump jockeying, uh, the rise of the virus in Portland. So stay tuned with us. Rob, how have things been? I see you're back on the island. Uh, you Now, have you gone to D.C. through the quarantine at all? Do you have to leave for meetings or are you just hunkering down? Uh, so I have actually been here pretty constantly since March 16th, which mm. was my last you know, long-term trip, although I took a two-day trip to Washington about uh, five weeks ago. I had a doctor's appointment, a couple things. And I will say, yeah, D.C. was totally um, empty. I, I drove up um, 18th Street, which is right uh, uh, in the heart of town, and uh, up to the doctor and this and that. And I couldn't have seen 10 cars in in uh, 12 blocks from the, you know, the down near the Lincoln Memorial and all the way up uh, to the Jefferson Memorial and all the way up. So, but I, I must say, I, when you mentioned the deep state, am I deep state? I, there are days <laughs> when I am so thankful for the deep state. And then there are days when I absolutely, I, I know exactly what Trump and all of them are talking about. And in fact, some of my friends and I had an argument about that last night. You know, I have two friends who are very involved in education in DC, um, down for the weekend. They're very careful, obviously. And, and my wife is likewise very involved, um, runs, a, heads a charter school, um, chairs of charter school network and stuff like that. So we, we hear a lot about education and, and talk about a pain and problem. Maybe we should add, add to that our, to, to our list. Let's too, start there because I'm interested in the conversation. What was the conversation that you guys were having without betraying confidences? Well, um, well, without, uh, without, doing any of that you know what i think one of the interesting things is what we hear a lot right now it's kind of the battle between the teachers unions and uh trump and parents and and teachers independent of the unions and i i think what we all hear from the anti-trumpers is uh well he should follow the science he should follow the science and and by the way this is part of that conversation from last night which is and by that they mean the science on the disease Right. And and uh, we know that kids under 10 
are less likely to be harmed by it and less likely to be carriers. But as soon as they hit that number, then they start going the other direction. But what's left out in a lot of the conversations, and this was part of the conversation last night, was the other science, which is the science of learning. And, and what people like the folks who are, down, who are down right now and my wife and others involved in education know is young kids must go to school and have a teacher. They don't need it, you know, five days a week, eight hours a day, all that. But they really need uh, a teacher and a nurturer in that early period, pre, you know, K through maybe third grade, something like that. And, and, and don't count me as the expert. I'm reflecting. No, right I've here. thought a lot about that because if you've read um, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, he talks about the difference. One of the major contributors to why low-income children have uh, are more disadvantaged than middle-class or upper-class children is that through the summertime, the, the middle-class and upper-class parents take them to museums or they, there is a culture of learning in the home, whereas in lower-income mm-hmm. lower families, they don't have the luxury of going to a well, museum. And, and you're, that's right. And, and just you're going to start seeing month, some yeah. of those disparities, Chris. Yeah, that two-month period yeah. really disrupts yeah. it. So I'm, well, I'm – yeah. But, but here's what's happening. So – um, parents who can afford it are now forming pods. Yeah. If their school system is shut down, they're forming pods, groups of five or six people. We all, all of us are doing some version of that. I have, we have three couples who live nearby, who don't travel around, who are close, who enjoy. That's kind of our pod of eight people. We're very, all very careful. And, um, uh, but uh, parents are doing that in their neighborhood and parents are starting to hire teachers out of the school system. Now, it's not going to be the lower income parents who get to do that. It's going to be the middle and upper income parents who get that. So their kids are going to get the in-person kind of experience or people to help guide them for the, you know, for the distance learning. And, um, and, and right now, uh, and, and these people are learning from kind of a scoffed at sector of education, which is homeschooling. And, and right. you know, a, a lot of folks, including myself in the past, have thought of homeschooling as basically right wing religious nuts, <laughs> right. <laughs> to be honest. But it's not, you know, uh, yes, a lot of very religious non nut people. Uh, do it because they really have a preference about what the kids are taught. But, you know, my number three guy in my technology company, um, Jewish, liberal, uh, his wife is a PhD. They self-educated their kids at home. I have a number of my other friends. I have a young guy down on the island who's uh, uh, oyster guy and scientist, and he and his wife, she, she's well-educated. They educate their kids at home. And, and these kids have very full curricula and everything else, and they get it, a lot of it online. And you know, now there's, uh, there's a whole um, theory and practice of how to teach at home. So um, teach, learning at home and just, you know, not in the traditional schools is, has, is in a kind of a heyday. And, and I, I personally think that's going to jump up. But, but, but one of the problems right now, this part of the conversation, is the school systems don't adjust to that. You know, it's, it's black or white. They got to be in class or out or not. And, uh, and the district is kind of a little schizophrenic about it. And, um, and then you have the charter schools, which are public, public, ed, public education, public schools, but they are not under the same um, uh, management umbrella. So yeah. they get to do their own rules. So the mayor can say nobody gets to go to school or only one out of five or you go on three days a week or whatever. You know, there are lots of permutations of this. But the charter schools really kind of go their own way. Um, then you got the parents and a lot of parents are just scared to death. And yeah. 
and and you know lower income parents don't have a lot of options their kids have to take the bus um, they uh, are worried about exposure. The parents are frequently in, in uh, critical worker jobs that are high exposure, <clears throat> you know, low income. Um, and uh, we already know those communities of color are very, um, in particular, are very susceptible uh, to being exposed. And this is, this is all about exposure more than anything else. Yeah. And so they're reluctant to send their kids. And there's been polling done in a lot of cities on this whole thing. And upper income tend to want their kids to go back and the lower income tend to not because they're hmm. worried. And that's interesting and course, because I would think the, the financial pressure on lower income families would be a lot harder because they don't have as much luxury in terms of, you know, staying home but, or watching, you know, or having someone watch their kids or, or something along those lines. Absolutely. A lot of this is counterintuitive and, and, and technology and, too. I mean, technology yeah. factors into it. IPS couldn't go online schooling in the spring because the majority of the people that go to the Indianapolis public school system could not afford an iPad or a computer. And the district right. didn't have the money to fund that. So a lot of nonprofits over the summer have raised money to, to help supplement those needs, knowing the inevitable of all of us not leaving our house from September to March. Completely. And, and of course, every kid and every family and every system is different. And, and people are going to make their own judgments. I mean, one, one of the interesting sidebar conversations last night was over um, uh, presidents. So there was a big, you know, to do. Jimmy Carter sent his daughter to a public school in downtown Washington. Um, uh, and she, by all lights, has done just fine. And, um, and then uh, Obama, uh, well, let's see, I think uh, the Fords and uh, had kids, but they were in, uh, I think they were in Arlington schools, if I remember. And then Obama, sent his kids to uh, an elite private school as did um w when his kids were there and it's uh, um you know it was, and clinton sent chelsea to an elite private school and there was this whole outrage about well why shouldn't he be going he supports public schools why shouldn't they be going to public school and and the same people said look every parent wants the best education they can <laughs> right. afford for their kids they are not interested in their kids being symbols Right. Um, I think Jimmy Carter was uh, more, more of that, but that's fine. It was a very different period in time, and and symbols were important, frankly, right after uh, the whole Nixon thing. So, but um, but it, these were controversial locally as well as nationally. But hmm. um, so, like one of the the women was saying, she has two young uh, kids, and they're they're twins. One is doing really well under this, and one is not so well. He really needs pe uh, you know teachers and that kind of structure. And, I, I'm doing some work myself with um, Virginia Institute of Marine Science on a, an app for fishermen <laughs> where you can aim it at the fish and it will tell you what it is and measure it and report the data and, you know. Sidebar, how do you do that? Like, is it RFID? Like, what's in the phone that allows you to do that? Did I a, get it's sonar? A, it's a technology built around the number of pixels in the camera. It can wow. tell you if it fills so many, it's so big. And but um, but that woman is a scientist that who runs who I'm working with, and her husband's a scientist, senior scientist. Their kid, who's like ten or eleven or twelve, skipped ahead two grades in science and two grades in math. Uh, so some kids flourish and others don't. And then you know, college is part of this picture too. I I um, I mentor a kid, uh, a young guy from. Uh, 
Rice, where I went as an undergrad, and, and I called him up and said, well, how, how are you doing? And how the class is going? So, you know, mostly it's okay. It's, it's not so good in every respect. So, but like he said, my physics class, I have a hard time when I'm there understanding the professor, um, sort of Chinese speak. I just can't understand him half the time. Too fast, this little language barrier. And he said, so now I get my, my choice of professors and I get to watch the lecture again and again if I don't get it the first time. So yeah, again, every, and, and every kid's different. Every situation is different. And that, that's the other thing. You know, we've, I think the criticism of Trump is that they don't have a big national plan. Well, yeah, they do. I mean, the plan was CDC to offer some guidelines, but in the end, the states are going to have to decide. That's a plan. It, it's every school system. That, and that's yeah, the way that, you know, there's a plan. Exactly right. I mean, I don't know why we, we we're all looking to centralize leadership, but it goes back to Hayek's knowledge problem. There is not one person who can plan this effectively because the, the task is too big. And so you have to disperse that throughout the market. Um, and allow me to go even further libertarian. Like if you're cynical about the future of liberty, we've just watched government schools be destroyed by the government in about six months. And now the only way to really salvage education for the next generation is through innovation in the marketplace. And so that's why you have to, the, the uh, teachers unions are as every power does when they're losing its grip are trying to clamp down on local politicians and grab power. But this is an amazing time for innovation you know my girlfriend was homeschooled she is now an online teacher for chinese kids who want to learn english she teaches overnight uh she does that she also teaches at a christian school here locally at a in in a classroom well so i've watched kind of the last few months you know and i'm going you're better suited like than ever because your skill set now that you have a this body of work that you can transition and she's been telling me a lot about how everybody's trying to move online or move to the pods or move to innovative solutions because they have to, and it's never going to go back. Like once you, and this is what the unions know, is once you fundamentally disrupt an industry, it never goes back. And the internet age has disrupted every major industry except education and government. And one down, two to, two, one down, one to go, (laughs) you know, and I think that what, 2020 has done is, in a lot of ways, validated a lot of the natural rights, small government arguments in that your localized control is incredibly important. There is a problem with the state's relationship to its citizens, especially in, in, you know, minority communities. Education is too centralized and it needs to be handed back to local schools like the the best way for us to get through a lot of this is is to really return to local control and give power back to parents and when trump says follow the money should follow the student if you're the public school systems in indiana and i'm assume it's this maybe it's this way everywhere the uh, the first two weeks the amount of kids that show up to your public school is the amount of funding you get for the rest of the year and so they literally have vans going out and picking up truant students they have <laughs> kidnapping fans in the in the ips school yeah. system to get people to go to school and that money so so you have a real challenge here because what you're going to have is the public schools almost become ghettoized in that as people in up higher tax brackets can start to homeschool or do online learning the funding for the public schools is going to get worse and so innovation has to be a part of it deregulation has to be a part of it 
to avoid that happening. You know, otherwise so, it's a very oh, real I'm consequence. I'm going to push you back slightly and, okay. and polite, politely and uh, try to do that more neutrally. So, um, you know, I, I understand what you're saying, but when you say government schools, for example, I went to public school. Mm-hmm. I never thought of it as a government school. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it was not governed by the government. It was governed by uh, a, a statewide set of standards and all that. And then then each county had its own and they all could interpret it. So school systems have for a long time been the biggest um, example of local self-government because while states have standards and the feds do research and provide it to them, the federal government doesn't really mandate as much as everybody thinks they do, nor could they. And number two, every, again, this is why I think this notion of federalism that the founders had was so crucial. I don't think they thought of it as localism. I think they thought of it as, you know, we, you know, at a high level of, um, high level of self-governance, but by the same token, when you think about this from the, from the standpoint of governing models, neutrally, non-politically, it still makes sense. You know, how, how can the alternative is China where you have the government collecting data on everybody and everything and telling you because they fear that they're going to change the government. Well, here we may not like our government and some people may fear changing the government, but we happily go along and vote every two and four years. We're on a podcast criticizing the government. I mean, I say yeah, that right. all the time. You know, we we, so, we are so a free country yeah. still, yes. Yeah, and and just it's just very difficult. You know, I think rationally it would be very difficult, but the politics has become so awful. I mean, the union so clearly, whenever I see Randy Weingart, Weingarten, you know, head of one of the biggest unions, talking about the science, I know she's not talking about the science of education. She's talking <laughs> right. about the science of COVID and, and about teachers, not about how to solve the problem for teachers. Right. All money, all money, all Washington. It's not that. You know, it's, again, people looking. We've got a lot of, like in this county, we have had, we have uh, 8,100 people. We have 1,000 students pre-K to, through 12. We have had a total of 10 cases, of which four, I will admit, are in the last two weeks, in five months. And, um, and people around here don't wear the masks like they should. And um, I will tell you a story, by the way, where we dodged a bullet on that here, mm-hmm. at, which I've been saying locally. It will only take one person to wipe out the whole county. Um, but so this county, what they did, small county in Virginia, um, we, the average age is over 65. Um, it's considered, um, I think the average uh, income is in the 40s, low 40s, which puts it above poverty and out of the reach of certain programs. But that's mainly because 10% of us skew the, the income numbers <laughs> right. to 90% right. and, um, and a lot of retirees. And um, they bought um, 700 uh, Chromebooks for their students with some of their money. That was COVID money. That was great. Um, they have put up uh, only uh, about 30% of the kids can only get the internet and high speed on either a cell phone or on broadband at home and 30% can't. Um, so they've set up buses to travel around. Welcome to We Are Libertarians, where our goal is to help you sound smarter while talking to your friends. This is another special episode of We Are Libertarians with our good friend Rob Cortell, and, and it's called The Swamp Explained. My name is Chris Spangle. 
We talked to Rob, who is a 45-year fly on the wall in Washington, D.C. Rob has worked for Republican presidential campaigns, government agencies like the EPA, and has been confirmed by the Senate to the U.S. Maritime Commission. He's also been a candidate for Congress and Senate. He's also spent years working in the private technology sector, working with startup companies. And uh, you're going to hear a lot of cool facts about his past. He's he, We'll hear he's deep state. That's what I heard. Given his experience <laughs> and iconoclastic viewpoints, Rob gives us great insight into the swamp that makes up our nation's capital. And, uh, you know, we... How can you change something you don't understand? And that's the goal of this show is to talk about Washington and its power structure and and how it exists now and what does it look like. And so we're going to talk about some of the presidential polling, the post-Trump jockeying, uh, the rise of the virus in Portland. So stay tuned with us. Rob, how have things been? I see you're back on the island. Uh, you Now, have you gone to D.C. through the quarantine at all? Do you have to leave for meetings, or are you just hunkering down? Uh, so I have actually been here pretty constantly since March 16th, which mm. was my last you know long-term trip, although I took a two-day trip to Washington about uh, five weeks ago. I had a doctor's appointment, a couple things. And I will say, yeah, D.C. was totally um, empty. I, I drove up... Um, 18th street, which is right uh, uh, in the heart of town and uh, up to the doctor and this and that. And I couldn't have seen 10 cars in, in uh, 12 blocks from there, you know, the down near the Lincoln Memorial and all the way up uh, to the Jefferson Memorial and all the way up. So, but I, I must say, I, when you mentioned the deep state, am I deep state? I, there are days <laughs> when I am so thankful for the deep state. And then there are days when I absolutely, I, I know exactly what Trump and all of them are talking about. And in fact, some of my friends and I had an argument about that last night. You know, I have two friends who are very involved in education in DC um, down for the weekend. They're very careful, obviously. And, and my wife is likewise very involved, um, runs, a, heads a charter school, um, chairs of charter school network and stuff like that. So we, we hear a lot about education and talk about a pain and problem. Maybe we should add to that our, to, to our list. Let's too, start there because I'm interested in the conversation. What was the conversation that you guys were having without betraying confidences? Well, um, well, without, uh, without doing any of that, you know, what, I think one of the interesting things is what we hear a lot right now. It's kind of the battle between the teachers unions and uh, Trump and parents and and teachers, independent of the unions. And I, I think what we all hear from the anti-Trumpers is, uh, well, he should follow the science. He should follow the science. And, and by the way, this is part of that conversation from last night, which is, and by that, they mean the science on the disease. Right. And, and uh, we know that kids under 10 are less likely to be harmed by it and less likely to be carriers. But as soon as they hit that number, then they start going the other direction. But what's left out in a lot of the conversations, and this was part of the conversation last night, was the other science, which is the science of learning. And and what people like the folks who are down who are down right now and my wife and others involved in education know is young kids must go to school and have a teacher. They don't need it, you know, five days a week, eight hours a day, all that, but they really need uh, a teacher and a nurturer in that early period, pre, you know, K through 
maybe third grade, something like that. And, and, and don't count me as the expert. I'm reflecting. No, I've thought a lot about that because if you've read um, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, he talks about the difference. One of the major contributors to why low income children have uh, are more disadvantaged than middle class or upper class children is that through the summertime, the the middle class and upper class parents take them to museums or they there is a culture of learning in the home whereas in lower mm-hmm. lower income families they don't have the luxury of going to a well, museum and, and you're that's right and, and just you're going to start two seeing month, some yeah. of those disparities chris yeah that two month period yeah. really disrupts yeah. it so I'm, well, I'm yeah but but here's what's happening so um this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Parents who can afford it are now forming pods. If their school system is shut down, they're forming pods, groups of five or six people. We all, all of us are doing some version of that. I have, we have three couples who live nearby, who don't travel around, who are close, who enjoy. That's kind of our pod of eight people. We're very, all very careful. And, um, uh, but uh, parents are doing that in their neighborhood and parents are starting to hire teachers out of the school system. Now, it's not going to be the lower income parents who get to do that. It's going to be the middle and upper income parents who get to do that. So their kids are going to get the in-person kind of experience or people to help guide them for the, you know, for the distance learning. And, um, and, and right now, uh, and, and these people are learning from kind of a scoffed at sector of education, which is homeschooling. And, and right. you know, a, a lot of folks, including myself in the past, have thought of homeschooling as basically right wing religious nuts, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> to be honest. But it's not, you know, uh, yes, a lot of very religious non nut people. Uh, do it because they really have a preference about what the kids are taught. But, you know, my number three guy in my technology company, um, Jewish, liberal, uh, his wife is a PhD. They self-educated their kids at home. I have a number of my other friends. I have a young guy down on the island who's uh, uh, oyster guy and scientist, and he and his wife, she, she's well-educated. They educate their kids at home. And, and these kids have very full curricula and everything else, and they get it, a lot of it online. And you know, now there's, uh, there's a whole um, theory and practice of how to teach at home. So um, teach, learning at home and just, you know, not in the traditional schools is, has, is in a kind of a heyday. And, and I, I personally think that's going to jump up. But, but, but one of the problems right now, this part of the conversation, is the school systems don't adjust to that. You know, it's it's black or white. They got to be in class or out or not, and uh, and the district is kind of a little schizophrenic about it. And um, and then you have the charter schools, which are public public ed, public education, public schools, but they are not under the same um, uh, management umbrella. So yeah. they get to do their own rules. So the mayor can say nobody gets to go to school or only one out of five or you go on three days a week or whatever. You know, there are lots of permutations of this. But the charter schools really kind of go their own way. Um, then you got the parents and a lot of parents are just scared to death. And, yeah. and, and you know, lower income parents don't have a lot of options. Their kids have to take the bus. 
Um, they uh, are worried about exposure. The parents are frequently in, in uh, critical worker jobs that are high exposure, <clears throat> you know, low income. Um, and uh, we already know those communities of color are very, um, in particular, are very susceptible uh, to being exposed. And this is, this is all about exposure more than anything else. Yeah. And so they're reluctant to send their kids. And there's been polling done in a lot of cities on this whole thing. And the upper income tend to want their kids to go back and the lower income tend to not because they're hmm. worried. And, That's interesting and course, because I would think the the financial pressure on lower income families would be a lot harder because they don't have as much luxury in terms of, you know, staying home but, or watching, you know, or having someone watch their kids or, or something along those lines. Absolutely. A lot of this is counterintuitive. And, 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 and technology, too. I mean, technology yeah. factors into it. IPS couldn't go online schooling in the spring because the majority of the people that go to the Indianapolis public school system could not afford an iPad or a computer. And the district right. didn't have the money to fund that. So a lot of nonprofits over the summer have raised money to, to help supplement those needs, knowing the inevitable of all of us not leaving our house from September to March. Completely. And, and of course, every kid and every family and every system is different. And, and people are going to make their own judgments. I mean, one, one, one of the interesting sidebar co- conversations last night was over um, uh, presidents. So there was a big you know, to do. Jimmy Carter sent his daughter to a public school in downtown Washington. Um, uh, and she, by all lights, has done just fine. And um, and then uh, Obama, uh, well, let's see, I think uh, the Fords and uh, had kids, but they were in, uh, I think they were in Arlington schools, if I remember. And then Obama sent his kids to uh, an elite private school, as did um, W., and his kids were there and it's, uh, um, you know, it's, and Clinton sent Chelsea to an elite private school. And there was this whole outrage about, well, why shouldn't he be going? He supports public schools. Why shouldn't they be going to public school? And, and the same people said, look, every parent wants the best education they can <laughs> right. afford for their kids. They are not interested in their kids being symbols. Right. Um, I think Jimmy Carter was uh, more, more of that, but that's fine. It was a very different period in time. And, and symbols were important, frankly, right after uh, the whole Nixon thing. So, but um, but it, these were controversial locally as well as nationally. But mm. um, so, like one of the the women was saying, she has two young uh, kids, and they're they're twins. One is doing really well under this, and one is not so well. He really needs pe- uh, you know teachers and that kind of structure. And I, I'm doing some work myself with um, Virginia Institute of Marine Science on a an app for fishermen <laughs> where you can aim it at the fish and it will tell you what it is and measure it and report the data. And, you know, sidebar, how do you do that? Like, is it RFID? Like what's in the phone that allows you to do that? Did I get a, sonar? It's a, it's a technology built around the number of pixels in the camera. And it can wow. tell you if it fills so many, it's so big. And, but, um, but that woman is a scientist that who runs, who I'm working with and her husband's a scientist, senior scientist, their kid who's like 10 or 11 or 12 skipped ahead two grades in science and two grades in math. Uh, so some kids flourish and others don't. And then, you know, college is part of this picture too. I, I, um, I mentor a kid, uh, a young guy from, uh, Rice, where I went as an undergrad, and and I called him up and said, "Well, how how are you doing? And how the class is going?" So you know, mostly it's okay. It's it's not so good in every respect. So, but like he said, my physics class, I have a hard time when I'm there understanding the professor. Um, 
sort of Chinese speak. I just can't understand him half the time. Too fast, this little language barrier. And he said, so now I get my, my choice of professors and mm. I get to watch the lecture again and again if I don't get it the first time. So yeah, again, every, and, and every kid's different. Every situation is different. And that, that's the other thing. You know, we've, I think the criticism of Trump is that they don't have a big national plan. Well, yeah, they do. I mean, the plan was CDC to offer some guidelines. But in the end, the states are going to have to decide. That's a plan. It, it's every school system. That, and that's yeah, the way that, you know, there's a plan. Exactly right. I mean, I don't know why we, we we're all looking to centralize leadership, but it goes back to Hayek's knowledge problem. There is not one person who can plan this effectively because the the task is too big. And so you have to disperse that throughout the market um, and allow me to go even further libertarian. Like if you're cynical about the future of liberty, we've just watched government schools be destroyed by the government in about six months. And now the only way to really salvage education for the next generation is through innovation in the marketplace. And so that's why you have to, the, the uh, teachers unions are as every power does when they're losing its grip are trying to clamp down on local politicians and grab power. But this is an amazing time for innovation. You know, my girlfriend was homeschooled. She is now an online teacher for Chinese kids who want to learn English. She teaches overnight. Uh, she does that. She also teaches at a Christian school here locally at a, in, in a classroom. Well, so I've watched kind of the last few months, you know, and I'm going, you're better suited like than ever because your skill set now that you have a, the, this body of work that you can transition. And she's been telling me a lot about how everybody's trying to move online or move to the pods or move to innovative solutions because they have to. And it's never going to go back. Like once you, and this is what the unions know, is once you fundamentally disrupt an industry, it never goes back. And the internet age has disrupted every major industry except education and government. And one down, two to, two to one down, one to go, you know, and I think that what, 2020 has done is in a lot of ways validated a lot of the natural rights small government arguments in that your localized control is incredibly important that there is a problem with the state's relationship to its citizens especially in in you know minority communities education is too centralized and it needs to be handed back to local schools like the the best way for us to get through a lot of this is is to really return to local control and give power back to parents and when trump says follow the money should follow the student if you're the public school systems in indiana and i'm assume it's this maybe it's this way everywhere the uh, the first two weeks the amount of kids that show up to your public school is the amount of funding you get for the rest of the year and so they literally have vans going out and picking up truant students they have <laughs> kidnapping fans and in the, in the ips school yeah. system to get people to go to school and that money so so you have a real challenge here because what you're going to have is the public schools almost become ghettoized in that as people in up higher tax brackets can start to homeschool or do online learning the funding for the public schools is going to get worse and so innovation has to be a part of it deregulation has to be a part of it to avoid that happening, you know, otherwise so, it's a very oh, real consequence. I'm going to push you back slightly and, okay. and polite, politely and uh, try to do that more neutrally. So um, 
you know, I, I understand what you're saying, but when you say government schools, for example, I went to public school. Mm-hmm. I never thought of it as a government school. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it was not governed by the government. It was governed by uh, a, a statewide set of standards and all that. And then then each county had its own and they all could interpret it. So school systems have for a long time been the biggest um, example of local self-government because while states have standards and the feds do research and provide it to them, the federal government doesn't really mandate as much as everybody thinks they do, nor could they. And number two, every, again, this is why I think this notion of federalism that the founders had was so crucial. I don't think they thought of it as localism. I think they thought of it as, you know, we, you know, at a high level of, um, high level of self-governance, but by the same token, when you think about this from the, from the standpoint of governing models, neutrally, non-politically, it still makes sense. You know, how, how can the alternative is China, where you have the government collecting data on everybody and everything and telling you because they fear that they're going to change the government. Well, here we may not like our government and some people may fear changing the government, but we happily go along and vote every two and four years. We're on a podcast criticizing the government. I mean, I say yeah, that right. all the time. You know, we, so, we are, we are so a free country the, yeah. still, yes. Yeah, and and just it's just very difficult. You know, I think rationally it would be very difficult, but the politics has become so awful. I mean, the union so clearly, whenever I see Randy Weingart, Weingarten, you know, head of one of the biggest unions, talking about the science, I know she's not talking about the science of education. She's talking <laughs> right. about the science of COVID and, and about teachers, not about how to solve the problem for teachers. Right. All money, all money, all Washington. It's not that. You know, it's, again, people looking. We've got a lot of, like in this county, we have had, we have uh, 8,100 people. We have 1,000 students pre-K to, through 12. We have had a total of 10 cases, of which four, I will admit, are in the last two weeks in five months and um and people around here don't wear the mask like they should and um, i will tell you a story by the way where we dodged a bullet on that here mm. at, which i've been saying locally it will only take one person to wipe out the whole county um but so this county what they did small county in virginia um we the average age is over 65 um it's considered, um, I think the average uh, income is in the 40s, low 40s, which puts it above poverty and out of the reach of certain programs. But that's mainly because 10% of us skew the, the income numbers to <laughs> right. 90% right. And, um, and a lot of retirees. And um, they bought um, 700 uh, Chromebooks for their students with some of their money. That was COVID money. That was great. Um, they have put up... Uh, only uh, about 30% of the kids can only get the internet and high speed on either a cell phone or on broadband at home and 30% can't. Um, so they've set up buses that travel around and park for a while. Students bring them out, kind of download their lessons, go home, work on it, go back and, and or they can stay there. And, and they put up, and you know, I told you I'm on broadband committee here. So we're doing a lot of interesting <laughs> things, but people are doing workarounds that work for them. And, and some will succeed and some will fail abysmally. And, um, and I just, I think this debate is, it's ludicrous that it's become so polarized, but you know, the one side is Trump has no plans, uh, which is not true. They have followed a CDC directive and, and I don't think Betsy DeVos is the greatest spokesman for much of anything, <laughs> but, but 
you know, she, her message was, you need to get kids back to school. I'm, I'm okay with that. The question is, how do you do it? And uh, in, in some ways, it reminds me way back when of the oil embargo. I know you, you periodically like to dip into the past. Yeah. I was working for the Federal Energy Office, and we had to ration oil, gasoline. And, and if your license plate ended in an odd number, you were on odd days of the week. And if it was an even number, you were even days of the week So <laughs> to go get it. But it's going to be a lot of that in education, a lot of experimentation. I, and I do, like you, I do think that there's no question there's going to be more online. Um, this is where if, if the education establishment, and by that, you got the unions on the one hand, you got the management of education, super, superintendents on the other, and then you got parents and then you got charter schools. If they can learn like uh, from the kind of education practices your girlfriend does in homeschooling and others can learn from that, then there will be a big component that even if you go back to public schools in the day physically, eventually um, you'll be able to go home and get private tutoring and other that, you know, as part of the school system, right. part of the system. So anyway, you, you, you nailed it. You nailed it with the teachers unions, because what what she said and what I've heard from others is that the teachers are afraid to go back. The people that the adults that work there, especially since a lot of the teachers are older and at risk, you know, and kids are just really gross like that. Yeah. You know, I mean, Particularly and, little kids, they're just incubators for germs. I've, I've right. you know, so, yeah, I, I totally get it. So tell us about dodging the bullet. What? Oh, what happened there? Well, you know, I've, I've talked about, you know, you just heard me talk about the county. And I'll tell you what, I, I, I'm sure I told everyone that um, I stopped going to the local grocery store about two weeks, two months ago, because in fact, almost 10 weeks ago, because um, I'd go in and almost no one was wearing a mask. And I, I kind of and confronted the uh, manager, store manager, who I, I like, and said, you know, I'm going to stop coming here because no, I wears a mask. And, you know, and it's just irresponsible. They, you know, it's, I'm, I'm wearing a mask. I'm protecting you, but you're, they're not protecting me. And she said, oh, I know. It's just awful. Very irresponsible. And she wasn't wearing a mask. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, the irony just, and I stopped going. I drive an hour and 10 minutes, you know, as I was saying, down to the Whole Foods and Newport News where they, everybody's been doing it. And I go to the Walmart. They've been doing good social distancing practices and the masks. And, uh, but, but again, you know, people's attitude is we're not going to get it here in Matthews. Hmm. You know, nobody comes and goes, well, about, you know, probably half the population's retired and they don't travel much. And then, but uh, the young people, it's only, it's a small percentage, but half of them go down to Newport news to the shipyard, which has its own outbreak and all those areas are really problematic. I mean, among the areas in Virginia that have the highest numbers, it's kind of where I go for my groceries, right? <laughs> but where they're careful. And, um, but anyway, so, you know, my daughter uh, and her husband and my granddaughter, three-year-old live in Dallas and um, they came out for the week before, uh, for the week before the 4th of July. They're very careful. He's with a big healthcare company and she's been remote. They've been remote the whole time. And, um, and my brother who lives in Florida, uh, uh, has a place in North Florida and crystal river. And he was, he's been very careful. He has an underlying minor condition and for which he takes Coumadin or not that, but some equivalent blood thinner. And, uh, and he was going to come up and then he all of a sudden decided not to do it. And, you know, he, he's kind of a little bit of a libertarian too. And he, nice. he didn't want to get stuck in Virginia. He said, you know, like <laughs> he didn't want to come up and have to self-isolate the police state of Virginia. one week of vacation <laughs> so he canceled well i i hadn't talked to him for like three weeks four weeks called him up zoomed with him 
the other day and turns out three or four days, five days into when he would have been here, he developed a massive headache. He said, never had headaches. The next day, 104 temperature. The next day, breathing issues. And he clearly had it. And he had gone out, despite being careful, down to, to Tarpon Springs and had lunch at a restaurant there. And, you know, and his girlfriend did not get it. But she's been careful because she has a kid who's got an issue, too. Mm. And uh, it turns out he was fine. He did telemedicine, never had to go to the hospital. But it was pretty awful, he said. And and he said his doctor said that what saved him was the fact that he or was helpful was that he was on a blood thinner. So, you know, we had these really? micro strokes in the lungs and all that kind of stuff. So he he was he said it was the worst thing he'd ever had, but he managed to survive without the hospital. And, and uh, but if he had been up here, if he had not randomly canceled his trip, um, he would have exposed my wife and myself, uh, my daughter, uh, son-in-law, granddaughter our six friends who would have been in and out over those five days. Um, you know, probably the lawnmower guy who comes over and wears a mask, but who knows? Right. Uh, uh, you know, I will have gone to the grocery twice because there would have been company, um, the post office every day. Uh, so we would, it, it, this would have been like a ricochet, just, just spreading. And I, for a long time have said in this County, it would only take one. And, uh, you know, if, if we went to church, which we don't, he, if we had, we would have spread it to everybody in a church or um, any other meeting. So that's, that's when I say, boy, we dodged a bullet. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, it just really makes you think. So we try to be very careful. And I think mind. the thing that I keep coming back to, and maybe that I wonder if the anti-mask thing has hit your feeds, like in my echo chamber online, it's. You know, I saw the other day, like, you will die if you wear a mask because of all the bacteria. It's just, it's, my feed has has gone very anti-mask, which is just, you know, whenever you use force instead of persuasion, that's what happens. But, you know, at what point, and so the mask is really the trade-off, right? Like, to keep people like yourself safe or your brother who's at risk. Yeah. Everybody wears the mask, so it, it stops the spread by about 70%, and that, that's the trade-off. And so the, yeah. it's – And it's an action you take for your community and your, the people you live with. Right. But there, there's also the sense of like, well, I don't know how long this is going to go on. It's not like uh, uh, you know a, a tropical storm that will be over in six weeks. we got to live our lives. Like, you know, at what point does your brother start traveling again? Or, I mean, if he never had it, right? If he's, if he just never had it, like when does real life resume? And I told him to come on up here and give us some of his, his uh, plasma now. Yeah. Right. So I'm I'm wondering if you have thought about like the long-term future, as opposed to just this short-term wave. Well, I think uh, my personal opinion is, is, um, we probably could learn something from the from Asia here, you know, the Japanese and the Chinese and Asian societies, which are much more densely packed than ours, have for a hundred years worn. They began wearing them regularly during the the flu in, in uh, 1918, 1916, 18, uh, when it was spreading worldwide, and so they're kind of used to it. And and I must say, um, I think there is, um, uh, I I suspect. Uh, that the, the other viral diseases will decline over this period as people use masks. It won't just be COVID. Um, so that'll be an interesting thing to see a little bit later. Um, but, you know, there is a, I, I have this dystopian vision 
of the, all this too, you know, and you're starting to see some of it. I have this idea that there's kind of a story here, a science fiction story about a future where people, um, uh, uh, everybody wears masks and you wear mask clothing and you wear makeup that, uh, in fact, there's a book on this. Uh, uh, I'll give you the name before we're over here. It's great. It's by two guys who wrote uh, the uh, this great um, war a novel some number of years ago had been with the National Security Council. But anyway, so um, so they wear makeup that reflects the the cameras looking at you. And so, oh. of course, so you're mixed. So I'm mixing the idea of disease prevention with the idea of privacy. Yeah. And, you know, you we're spied on all the time now. And I don't mean that in a, you know, kind of a crazy eye. It's just, it's everywhere. You know, you walk around your cell phone, it's being tracked, the day it's been used. You, you're, you walk into restaurants or down the street and it's all in a facial camera and your DNA is being collected. And of course in China, they're doing it deliberately and systematically. And here we're doing it randomly without any controls. And, and I, I think if I, we're in Congress or the Senate. Uh, I one of my biggest single issue would be how to deal with this privacy thing going forward. So back to your question, can you imagine a society where your clothing is designed to 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 appear like a stealth clothing? Or the, the the Sharia and, law people. And everybody turned, wore a face mask. Or, yeah, you know. the Sharia law people turned out to be right. What in the world's right. going on? All these conspiracy theorists. They were yeah, all, pre- well, all prepper homeschoolers now. Well, yeah, and it'd be like you can imagine you wear all sorts of different kinds of masks. I mean, maybe mask is a fashion statement, and but you but to me it would occur. You know, you could in, in the dystopian view it would occur in the future as the only way to get privacy is to is to be able to walk into it and not be seen so well let's talk about the dystopian future we'll talk about portland and then and then, and then oh re-election um so what's happening in portland is a continuation of the protest many of them i mean i saw one set of protesters the other night with a bunch of communist flags out protesting and they've been tagging buildings i mean i don't think i don't think we have to illustrate the unrest that's gone on across the the nation uh, and Trump has vowed to be tough on these people, and so he sent basically the equivalent of federal troops, activated several agencies, including the, the Border Patrol, uh, to protect federal buildings. But in Portland, and he promises to deliver this to other cities soon, the, the federal troops are now starting to wander away from the, the block that the federal courthouse and federal buildings, and they're arresting people. They're putting people in vans. There's some that are marked with a police badge. There are some that are unmarked. The vans are unmarked. And, you know, this is something that libertarians, uh, civil libertarians of all stripes, when Obama passed the NDAA, saying, you don't want to do this stuff because in the future there may be somebody that isn't good that can use these things for, for bad. And what you essentially have is Donald Trump, in my opinion— using these federal troops and these images for campaign commercials. He's not really quelling the violence. If anything, they're inflaming the unrest. You're getting bigger protests coming out. Yeah. And a lot of these policing actions, what most people on the, the right that are screaming for more don't get is that it increases the amount of radical activity because it inflames people so much that the state – and then it's just a tit for tat, which is sort of where we're at. So – when you look yeah. at this story, what are some of your thoughts on it? Well, uh, you're touching on a whole lot of different things. I, I uh, um, uh, 
I mean, there's the issue of authority, and I, I think what will be found is that the president does have the authority, the federal government, to send in all of these various people. Um, I, uh, my personal opinion is that it, it is a mistake to use them on the streets. Most of them are not uh, crowd control tra trained. I mean, you know, customs guys and everything else. So that's another whole. Well, that's one strand. The other is um, is we're now a lot of white people, you know, are experiencing what um, undocumented immigrants are, are seeing, which is somebody snatches them off the street, which is a new kind of thing. Um, and that so maybe there's some good in that for them to see it. But um, the third thing, though, is it really does bring me back. You know, we, this is the swamp. It's how does how do things get where they are? Right. So um, so. I, I do think that one of the big issues goes back to the Homeland Department of Homeland Security and its creation and 9-11 and, and folks don't remember all of um, the circumstances probably that led up to it, but it, at the time, um, customs was in one place, immigration somewhere else and, and um, nuclear uh, authorities were somewhere and there were all these agencies scattered all over the place and and the Democrats had the idea initially of putting into a Homeland Security Agency and they didn't call it that. I mean, the, the name itself is dystopian in my mind. I have always <laughs> right. hated that name. It just, um, it's, it's one, there's just something, um, uh, I don't know, communist, socialist, whatever the hell you want to call it about using the term homeland, you know, uh, when you, the only people who use that term historically are people who are kind of out of that Orwellian. That, Orwellian culture. Yeah. Right. And, and uh, so the Democrats started and then the Bush administration, second Bush, a W uh, 43, basically realized they had to grab control of the narrative and they, they opposed it initially and then they endorsed it and then they put it all together. And, and, um, and I, uh, you know, I had a small part in some of that, which was um, my company at that time. I had um, <coughs> had, uh, um, sounded the alarm on container security, which I think we talked about before. I had realized in the middle of the night that you could take an ocean shipping container, which there are 40 million that come and go, uh, and put a nuke in it or chemical weapons or maybe uh, some kind of bioweapon or something like that. And no one would even know or they would not have 20 years ago. And, and so my company was very involved in the whole data side of that. And, um, and I, I, Got a, you know, I testified and I literally got a call one day from one of the committees writing the bill. So what should be in the data part of this? What should the government be able to collect? And I helped write and I wrote language, which basically ended up in the bill and in the department, which gives them in the end an absolute authority, federal authority to collect any data they want that they need for the purposes of Homeland Security. And, and I think, you know, I was very, um, I was a little apprehensive then. I thought about all the consequences, but, you know, at the same time, uh, we all want to do things which contribute to the, to the common good. And that was at the moment, that was what was being contributed. And those kinds of moments happened for a lot of people, I think, at that time. Uh, uh, and uh, I, I think the data aspect is the scariest part. Um, and partly, yeah, you know, I, we, we get talk about the Chinese example where they're now collecting DNA from everybody, particularly men, 
um, and they, they, the cell phones now collect data on everything and everything, everything you do and everything you touch and everyone you meet and run into and monitor movements. And they're all run through massive algorithms developed by an American company uh, um, and uh, using a lot of American technology to do all of this collection. And um, at least they have a plan and, and their plan is they're going to control everybody. And here we are, it goes back to this federal Thing. We, we don't have any, uh, we truly don't have a national policy on data collection and use and all that, which is why you see these lawsuits periodically about the use of, of uh, uh, license, uh, you know, driver's license data. Uh, I, I'm sure you, reader, our listeners, and you may remember several months ago, six months ago, uh, New York State and Cuomo and Trump got into a big snit. He cut them out of one of the programs because they didn't want to use, allow the feds to use their license data for something. So he cut them out of the, of the frequent travel, the, uh, the traveler program, mm. you know, the, the, the license that has the little, uh, the special code on it that says you've been screened and everything else. And they relented the other day because they so need the data. I think that not they, not they, the state, but they, the feds. Right. And, um, but anyway, no, it's, um, uh, I, I think Portland's Portland is problematic for all sorts of reasons. And you're right, Chris, they are really ramping it up and making it worse. And, uh, and for a lot of us, whether you're libertarian or civil liberties guy or uh, conservative or liberal, a lot of people are, are really perturbed by this as they well should be. And, and part of it's not deeply discussed. Yeah. I think people look at it and they go, well, I'm not, I have no sympathy for, college-aged communists and Antifa, and there's... My brother. Right. (laughs) You know, there... But the reality is that the... The outrage should be reserved for the state in in another term for the government in that it has all of the guns and the power to put you in jail forever. It has a monopoly on force. And so they have a higher burden of behavior. Like, they're... There, ha- there, there isn't a, an equivalent between a, an Antifa protester that uses violence and a federal agent because there's less accountability and more power on the federal agent side. And yeah. so just because I say this to libertarians all the time, don't let, the, don't let your enemy – don't support the greater enemy for the lesser enemy. You know what I mean? Like there, there right. isn't an equivalent here, and you have to check the power of the state because at the end of the day, like you said – you know, there we look back twenty years later and we have regret on what we developed, knowing now how it was used. Yeah. And so you have to think carefully. Creeping authoritarianism. That's exactly right. And so when you see this sort of behavior starting to take place, you have to check it because if you don't check it now, where is it in twenty years? There has to be some long term thinking. And I look at the a lot of this like you know leftist panic that that is going on. And it reminds me of the 2018 elections when the, the spooky caravans were all coming to get us. Oh, and yeah. right. those caravans never arrived. And yeah. it, he did it to scare people into voting for Republicans. And it didn't work then. And I don't know that it's going to work now, even though it does work with a segment, a portion of the population. Yeah, no, that's right. So it, it, this is something that has to be watched. And I think it's going to get worse before it gets get. But now, now you're now seeing that Trump offer um, 
these troops and and not they're not troops. I mean, let's we need to be accurate about it. These uh, law enforcement and a lot of them, of course, are analysts, just plain old analysts. Um, to the mayor of Chicago, who said, "We're happy to have you help us on, you know, the research and some of that, but we do not want troops." Now he's not sending troops, not offering troops. So you, you're seeing both sides create a false narrative about uh, where it's going. But the real, but you can see what's going on in Portland. You yes, that feels uncontrolled. There Big is a mistake. there is uh, there are existing law enforcement mechanisms. If a local or state agency feels things are out of control, they can activate their state guard, yeah. their national guard. They can ask for help. Trump is taking a power that he legally has but should not have. And we should take it away from the president of any president, like because what we have to think long term, because there are real consequences when we react to the politics of the moment. You have to think long term and how that plays out down the road. Yep. So totally. do, do totally. you think that this the 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 silent majority that he tweets out in all caps? Do you think that that when we look at some of this polling, you know, I'm looking at the real clear website now, Florida in a CNN poll, Biden up five, Arizona, Biden up four. You look at Michigan, Biden's up nine to 12 points in some polls. Uh, When you look at Minnesota, Biden's up 13. That's a Fox News poll in a Fox News poll. Trump is up one in Ohio, according to CNN, CBS News. Yeah, but when you look at the Fox News poll, Pennsylvania, Biden up yeah. 11, Minnesota up 13, and Michigan up 9. And he's, he's yeah. you know, in Florida, Quinnipiac, thir- Biden up 13. These are states that some of these states he won that he yeah. should be running away with. You know, he's he, – th- when you look at the electoral map – it's looking like now we all are smarting from 2016 and some of us predicted wrong. Um, <laughs> and some of us correctly. <laughs> yes. But so everybody's hesitant to say that this is going to be a Biden blowout. But when you look at the electoral map, it looks like he is people are exhausted with it because they took the chance. We know what Hillary is. We don't know what Trump is. We don't like Hillary. Let's go with the guy. Let's go with this new project. Now we've lived under four years of Trump and we go, we don't like that. That's worse or that's just as bad or worse than Clinton. And so let's go back to the, you know, the, the, so, the so, Biden, so, Obama okay. era, essentially. So, yeah. So, so everybody's looking at these polls and everybody sees something different. And I, I certainly see something different. First of all, um, you know, I can't stand Trump. Uh, I'm no fan of Biden's. He's been wrong on foreign policy his entire career. Um, um, so let's just take this as kind of a neutral statement. And, and you all remember, I did predict Trump and missed only one state by 3%, and that was Virginia. But um, first, uh, the national polls, the national polling data means nothing. Uh, I think if you took California and New York out of it, and next time we talk, we'll do that. Um, the, the difference in the percentage gaps are so large um, that that just totally skews the national. And I, I'm sure that Biden is still ahead of Trump at the national poll level, but not like quite the numbers you've been seeing. Second, secondly, um, as far as I can tell, all of the poll, polls are being reported um, in terms of registered voters, not likely voters. And likely voters, very hard to do. Um, and, um, and again, they're also taking relatively small samples um, so you have more error, um, and even when they publish it, uh, but 
Um, and that, so number two, it's registered, not likely. And we know that right now, the Trump, you look at the data on intensity, the Trump people are much more intense than the Biden people. So they are more likely to turn out in large numbers. Uh, third, uh, when you look at them, uh, there are still large numbers in most polls uh, who are calling themselves undecided. So Florida, not so much, it's 51, 46, but, uh, and Florida, and this is where uh, the campaigns I know are, are, they are rightly concerned about turnout and, and Trump is out of his mind uh, to talk about uh, the um, absentee ballots is the problem. <laughs> because it benefits Republicans. Yeah, it's huh? Republicans. Yeah. It save him. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so he's crazy in that respect. Um, but you look at Arizona, uh, it's, it's 50, 45, 49, 45. That's Trump v. Biden. Uh, Biden is up slightly. Ohio, even in the CBS poll, uh, Trump is up one over Biden. And there's uh, nine points of undecided. Uh, Michigan is... Um, is in one poll, Biden's up 12, and in another, he's up six. And in, in the one case, um, uh, 8% haven't reported. In the other case, um, eight, nine, 10% haven't reported, supposedly undecided. So how are they going to break? Well, undecideds tend to break for the guy who's challenging whatever system happens to be in charge. And Trump is still positioned as the guy who's challenging the system that we're talking about today. Um, more Arizona, I, Pennsylvania, I'm looking here, you know, Pennsylvania, there's uh, um, seven or eight points undecided in one poll, um, 11 in another. Um, so I do not think Biden should be feeling great that he's polling in 51, 50, 51, 52 percent in any of these polls because um, the undecideds are too large. The, um, they are registered voters, not likely voters. Um, and we know the Democratic voters generally tend to be less likely. Um, there are exceptions to that. And I think uh, the last congressional election was that. Um, but in, but uh, I don't think it's good news for Trump, for Biden yet. And it's not all death now for Trump yet. You know? Yeah. And the Senate is in play, too, in, in surprising totally. places like both of the Georgia seats are, uh, according to Polit Cook Political Report, Purdue is a toss up. Iowa with Ernst is a toss-up. Obviously, Collins and Maine. Uh, Montana is a toss-up. North Carolina, yeah. Tillis is a toss-up. McSally yeah. is leaning. Yeah. She, right she's now, a Republican. And, and I guess if I had to lay my money on it, I would not be surprised. I would, I would probably bet the Senate's going to flip. Uh, yeah. I don't think they're going to get 60-40, which means they'll never have cloture. So that means that it'll be uh, a broken Senate, just like it is now. Um, uh, it will allow, uh, because uh, the Democrats under Obama were so frustrated with the Republicans, they ended closer on, on uh, Supreme Court judges. And uh, that means that the Democrats will be able to uh, put in their own Supremes, which frankly, at this stage, I'm personally happy with that. <laughs> I just think I'm tired of ideological. I, you know, Merrick Garland was a good friend. He was about as neutral, a fabulous, well-educated, great choice you, you get out of anybody. Right. So and the Supreme, Supremes couldn't, shouldn't be politicized but they are but i i i still think the presidential race is a, a toss-up uh i don't know i think <laughs> i never want to say i never want to say no yeah today you 
you never know. Like I, I drove through a predominantly black part of town yesterday, and I saw a, a several signs saying "Register to Vote Here." And these were like furniture stores and groceries. These were not, yeah. you know, state-run offices. These were regular people who are fed up with with Trump wanting to register votes. But I know that that's happening on the conservative side. I know that, you know, my rural relatives from southern Indiana are extremely motivated to show up and yeah. vote. I mean, it it really yeah. is. It's hard to predict because you know that people who talk to pollsters who are on the right know that the the polls are going to be used to hurt Trump. So they 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 say the opposite of what they believe because they they they're they're trolling them. They they don't yeah. like the press. They don't like the pollsters. They want it to be wrong. They want it to be a surprise. Like so, but I think that Trump and his team are overplaying that secret Trump vote. I think yeah. I think they think the magic will that. strike twice. It's it's hard for that magic to strike twice because Biden fundamentally is not Clinton in terms of likability, in terms of yeah. style and substance. But it all could totally change once we get to the debates. Well, however he's those not happen. making any uh, mistakes right now. I, if I yeah. were Biden, I wouldn't debate Trump. Really, I, I, I would uh, just say you know the, the guy lies. Uh, he he twists facts. I'm not going to debate him. He can go debate himself. Um, and um, going to be interesting to see how they. So, of course, one of the pieces of political news is they canceled canceled the live convention. Basically, yeah. Republicans now uh, big surprise. So now they're kind of playing catch up. The Democrats have been playing planning a digital convention for months, and so now it's going to be very interesting to see how those play out. Um, you know, we're less than 100 days to the election now, and we are less than 20 days. I think to is it 20? It's maybe 60 days out. So we're about. Um, we're, I think, 40 days out of uh, the, no, it's 90 days. Is one, some, one of the states uh, can do mail-in ballots. So we're starting the whole, or register for mail-in ballots. So we're starting that election process in probably a week, 10 days. And um, I would not be surprised if we see a new form of poll, Chris. Um, <clears throat> pollers calling uh, for people who've cast their, their um, ballot remotely. Mm. And uh, are you, have you voted uh, already? And for whom did you vote? So that's going to be a very interesting set of numbers. Yeah, those exit polls are always super fascinating to dig into. And, yeah. and, and for the wasted vote people, you know, when you dig into them, the under 40 libertarian vote is always 10 to 15%. You know, yeah. over 40 who makes up the majority of voters currently. But when you look at the future, it, it's very libertarian leaning. And so it's, you know, despite all your young red hat wearing friends. So we only have about ten, <laughs> we only have about 10 minutes left, but let's talk about some of the post-Trump jockeying because Larry Hogan. Oh, yeah. Uh, wow. Just north of you, for instance, is constantly out there. You see Tom Cotton and Holly trying to carve out the post-Trump era wing of the authoritarian right. And then you have, you know, the Rand Paul's uh, kind of and the Ben Sasses in some respects trying to anchor the more natural rights order, libertarian leaning right. You've got Larry Hogan out there who's on TV. You can always tell who wants to run for president in the future because they're on on the Sunday shows all the time. And it's been Whitmer and Larry Hogan like through the pandemic. We we have a little bit of that pre auditioning on the Republican side. Yeah. And we have a lot of uh, auditioning for the vice presidential seat on the Democratic side. I, there are at least four or five women today who are on the short list, black women, 
uh, who were on there. And I, <laughs> I will say not one of them impressed me so much as Tammy Duckworth. Mm. Um, and uh, I think if he, uh, you know, I've said it before and say it again, if Biden had any sense, he'd drop his commitment to a woman. Uh, I'd love to see a woman on the top of the ticket and the bottom of the ticket and all that. But Andrew Cuomo right now is doing the best job of showing how people can lead. Mm, I could not. I, I agreed with you maybe in the past, but as of now, I couldn't disagree <laughs> with you more. He, well, I did. T I told you we one of our friends was displaying a Cuomo Fauci 2020 T-shirt. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like the, the revelation of the so, so long story short, the nursing homes Oh yeah, in New York. That's a that, mess. That, that's the that's mess. the. I mean, yeah, it just it's mess. inexcusable. Florida's the same thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, but in any case, uh, but there were a number of women on today for that. Um, I and Larry Hogan was on today, and I I like Hogan. I think, uh, uh, yes, he is jockeying. He decided not to run this time, which is probably intelligent. Um, he, I am a little surprised at how early, except that he and he declined to endorse Trump yet. And who knows what he may do before the election's over. But um, he is, is a, he has a book coming out. So he's on a book tour. So that's a mm. you know, digital book tour. So that's some of what's driving that. Uh, you know, the, the person, the people I have not heard from who I like are like Ben Sass. But now Ben Sass is up for re-election this time. So he's probably keeping his head low. And He is. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And then, uh, and, and then, you know, come 2024, you got... Paul Ryan going to come back out? You know, Paul Ryan, a lot of people like. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see Romney make another pass at it, um, even though he's up probably in his 70s by now. Uh, and then, um, but that doesn't seem to be an impediment. Maybe I should run, right? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Why not? Uh, Do you, can you, then, can uh, you finish the last five questions? Do you know how to count backwards from seven? <laughs> uh, 93. Yeah, right. <laughs> Mike Wallace, yeah. That was funny. Um Yes, you're right. They're jockeying. I, I, I think Ted Cruz is finished. He could never do it again. He's such an idiot. I, he, he is trying hard though. Like his podcast yeah, and all that. He's, he's trying to. I mean, I think Cruz, Sass, and Cotton are like the three veins yeah. moving yeah. forward. Where you've got the Trumpy wing following the Cotton people. You've got the 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 the, the National Review, Jonah Goldberg crowd following the Sass. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you've got the the cruise kind of crowd that's you know we're we're anti-communist but libertarian and then you got the people on various edges doing nikki haley and right uh, all that kind of stuff I, and again i i think trump would be intelligent to dump pence and put haley on the ticket now but i don't think she'd do it i think a lot of people think he's be a sinking ship but sometimes I, being the last man on the sinking ship is a good thing yeah do you think that you'll start to because of these um sinking poll numbers because of the the senate do you think there's a point where mcconnell says to everybody it's fine bash trump the the, the everybody save yourself stop trying to be oh, loyal I, to the president i think he's already doing it i really? think that you're starting to see these guys really 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 move independently out of that so yeah yeah, yeah. so i i you are seeing the jockeying uh, i i don't know that i think i don't know you know i told you i i go to this group every other week um it, it's um, sort of it's a lot of never Trumpers, but it's also kind of centrists and others. It's um, uh, I've forgotten the name of it, but anyway, it's run over by Niskan Center, and um, yeah, and I just am, I'm just convinced that so much and so many times people are they're not realistic about what the future is going to look like. I, I would I cannot predict yet 
what I think the post election is going to look like. I think the worst scenario of all for the party would be if Trump wins. It'll be the destruction of any, and I don't mean this in an apocalyptic way. I think he just doesn't have um, any philosophical mooring. So I think that it would be the destruction of any kind of sort of political philosophical moorings in what used to be the Republican Party. They're, they're pretty far gone already. Um, uh, but it'll be something new. And it'll be the new, whatever the new Republicans, and maybe we're the old Republicans. David Bowes, yeah, David Bowes posted the Never Trump issue from National Review, and you look at the names, and it's literally David Bowes and, like, one other guy are the the only ones left. Everybody else on that cover that was Never Trump are radically pro-Trump. They've shifted so much, and and, and it's so much about maintaining power that they've forgotten philosophical leanings. And I think that you're right, that any kind of philosophical libertarian streak that Reagan introduced and tried to preserve and, and popularize through the party will be gone if Trump wins re-election. The, obviously, the worst result is if it's extremely close and Trump loses, because yeah. then you've broken the legitimacy of the presidency well, and the transfer of power totally. Well, and I do think that, um, I, I think that uh, one of my friends who's very heavily involved on the left, um, he's not a leftist, he's just involved uh, on that end of the spectrum uh, with the election, they what they fear, and I don't discount it, is that if Trump loses, um, it, it, he'll be screaming, kicking and screaming all the way out. I, I, I'm frankly less fearful of that. But what they are worried about is the the lag on the results because of the uh, mm. mail mail in ballots and all the rest of that. And you know those can go for a week, uh, two weeks, three weeks, and the damage that could be wrought in that time frame by uh, a Trump uh, to the public psyche and acceptance of whomever wins would be 10 times what happened over the Gore-Bush deal. Yeah. So. No, we're in agreement that's there. What, that is what they, they fear the most. Well, we only have a couple minutes left, so to give us uh, maybe a show or a movie or a recipe or something, you know, what's from, well, you know, you know from, right now I'm watching, uh, we're watching a, the, uh, it's so funny when we do Zooms, everybody compares their Netflix, you know, we yeah. all, we all now, even the old people go home and Netflix and chill. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how much chilling there is, but a lot of Netflix, but um, uh, so we've been watching the, uh, uh, the Medici's and mm. uh, that's a at first it was sort of skeptical you want to know the TV things but it turns out to be reasonably accurate and great characters and and I and uh, and so friends are all recommending this or that I continue to recommend Babylon Berlin as our favorite of the last several years in terms of of content and character development and productions all of which are interesting and in it's a very interesting period of time which is the Democratic Republic in Germany between the two wars and with the communists and the, the Nazis and, and the, the royalists and all of them running around. Um, and, and we did watch this great series on uh, World War II, uh, which I think we talked about before uh, on uh, PBS and uh, uh, Masterpiece Theater. And, and I'm, the name is escaping, but you can find it. But my, my kids scoff, what, Masterpiece Theater? That's for old people. <laughs> Well, excuse me. (laughs) And uh, so, but we sort of, you know, go from one to the, oh, well, the other one that's been interesting is Perry Mason, the new Perry Mason. 
and and that's the guy who played in the Americans. Uh, okay. What's the actor? The uh, uh, you know, the Americans. We stopped watching. It was just too dystopian, too. I'm liking that term today. I guess the world's going dystopian. But, yes, it feels um, like it. But but uh, the new Perry Mason, he's kind of dissolute. He had bad, you know, discharge from World War One. I. I mean, I'm not spoiling anything, but it's really set back there between World War One and two, and mm. and uh, he's got a really interesting case. And um, what channel's so, that on? Uh, that one is, uh, I think that one is, I think we get it on Apple TV, but it, it may be HBO. Um, but it's, it's the new Perry Mason and, uh, that's definitely worth watching. It's a little dark, you know, I'll use noir. Yes. Noir is the right term for that. Uh, I'm ready for a Dick Tracy reboot now that you mentioned yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I agree. And, and you were reading, I mean, I read love in the time of cholera, which is not what I thought it was, but it was a great <laughs> book and <laughs> very relevant to anyone over 65. Who's a guy. And, uh, and, uh, uh and there's a new one. Uh, it's a robotic AI one, uh, which I'll try to remember next time or put it on the website. And, uh, my wife just read some other one that was written before all this, but it was about a pandemic. So lots of all these pandemic things are coming back. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a way to, and that, I saw an article about Perry Mason about how thirties media, like depression era settings are starting to crop up as people psychically want to deal with what's going on. Um, I just watched Air Force One for the first time uh, a couple oh, nights ago man. with Harrison Ford. <laughs> it was the first time in 15 years I've rooted for an American president because it is great propaganda. Like it's <laughs> funny, it's funny 30 year, looking 30 years back at the psychology and the, of patriotism that yeah. you know that that sort of we all had back then, but now is just so like gone and and uh, it's it's and that was uh, who played the president was uh, Ford. Ford, that's Harrison Ford, Harrison, right? Yep, yep. And he's so presidential. Uh, oh, and he's he, he's not presidential <laughs> at all, but he's you know he's constantly growling as he always does. But he you know yeah, right. when he he just there are multiple times where I'm like yeah. <laughs> but that's that's president as a guy you'd like to go drinking with too, right? I mean, you know, both decisive and running right. everything well, and you'd like to go drinking with him. And it's been a long time since we had one of those. Which so. led to Olympus Has Fallen, where, you know, the president in that was just cowering the whole time. I was like, where's your hair? You need to really, we need to step up the president. Yeah. So. And then and then there was uh, uh, Independence Day. Yes. yes. <laughs> so. Oh, well. well it was right. fun to talk. Well, it was great to talk to you. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll check in with Rob for another episode of The Swamp here in the next two or three weeks and uh, talk a little bit more about what's going on. If you appreciate it and like the show, then please share it with your friends. That is the only way that we can grow, and it, it really helps. So love for you to share this with your friends. Rob, thanks so much for joining me. Totally. All right. We'll talk to you soon.